Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Telling the Story podcast, the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog over at tellingthestoryblog.com, a look at how journalists and all of us reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. Bad news today, everybody. I have a cold and I'm losing my voice, as you can probably tell. The good news, my guest today is a fascinating person who I'm counting on to do most of the talking. He is a different kind of storyteller than we usually have on the podcast. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University and the author of a new book, American Insecurity, Why Our Economic Fears Lead to Political Inaction. Adam Seth Levine, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Adam, uh, you know, again, as I said, you're a, you're a different kind of guest than we usually have because you're not in the field of journalism or storytelling necessarily, but that's precisely why I feel like you're an interesting person to talk to about storytelling. You typically work in the academic world, and this is kind of a, a crossover in terms of reaching a wider audience. So before we get into that process, why don't you give a quick 60-second rundown of the book, American Insecurity, and what it's all about? Sure. Well, um, Americans today face no shortage of threats to their financial well-being, and these threats come in a variety of forms with uh, respect to the possibility of losing your job, not being able to afford health care, not being able to have a secure retirement, not being able to afford college. Um, collectively, this set of experiences adds up to what I refer to in the book as American insecurity. And the, the big puzzle that motivates the book is the fact that even though we've seen large rises in economic insecurity over the past generation or so, we haven't seen a lot of large-scale political pressure to sort of stem the tide. And so what the book is about is what the barriers to political mobilization around these kinds of issues are, and in particular, proposing a new way of thinking about what they might look like. So, and the book obviously is available wherever books are sold, Amazon and, and all of those places. What do you project as the audience for the book? I think the audience for the book is potentially quite wide. I mean, at some level, certainly it's written for academics, um, but it very much will have appeal to people outside of academia, people who are interested in politics, people who are interested in psychology, behavioral economics, communications more generally. So as someone who typically, again, you're an assistant professor at Cornell, uh, dealing with a very academic audience typically in your day job, and you've written dissertations before and, and other works, how do you then change that tone-wise to a book form, which obviously is, as you said, intended for a much wider audience? Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a key challenge that a lot of us in academia are facing nowadays. Um, we Many people want to reach a broader audience and want to write for a broader audience than what has necessarily been done in the past. And so a lot of what that comes down to is sort of figuring out, you know, how it is you could sort of uh, um, approach the puzzle that you're interested in in a way that would appeal to a lot of people um, and be true to certain kinds of academic standards and the scientific method and things like that as you're going about your research. But at the same time, make sure that um, the prose is legible and the prose makes sense to a wide audience and any sort of jargon is left for the appendices. And that was really what I tried to do in writing the book, sort of separate um, the core of what the idea is about and what the new ideas are for the main text and make sure that the appendices really sort of satisfy um, all sorts of other uh, obligations with respect to scientific transparency and things like that. And like you said, too, you know, your book, again, it's, it's titled American Insecurity. It's about the way 
American people feel about economic issues and then how that there seems to be a disconnect between how they feel and then what they do to act. So typically, you're trying to reach many of those people, I would assume, who feel a certain way, but why aren't they acting on it? So as you began this process of writing a book, how did, how did you have to change your mindset to what you typically do? I would say that the main thing um, was trying to sort of relate to the audience. I mean, when I graduated, what I saw all around me were exactly the forms of economic insecurity that I'm talking about in the book. I saw people who were not sure, who were concerned about losing their current job, weren't sure where the next job was going to come from, weren't sure how they were going to pay for uh, health care, how they were going to save for retirement, and so on and so forth. And so that set of experiences very much sort of motivated me to think about both, you know, what the political implications of that might be and why it is that, you know, we're not necessarily sort of seeing something that we might expect to see. And when I say that we're not seeing something we might expect to see, what I'm really sort of referring to is that I think there's this very sort of intuitive and common idea that people are more likely to act when they think that issues are important to them. Um, and we not, not only is it intuitive, but also we actually have a lot of evidence that that's the case. But yet that's not really what we've seen with respect to these issues. And uh, you mentioned several in the, in the very first chapter of the book. You talk about how people tend to respond to more visceral issues, as you put it, if uh, they're worried about losing their job or worried about the cost of their children going to college or something that affects them right to the core. Now, what you're also trying to do in, in this case is get many of those people to purchase a book that's about those things and get them to hear the argument to begin with. How do you go about that process? How, how do you go about reaching those people even before they can open the book? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that um, one of the major um, one of the major challenges is uh, convincing people that there's something new there. That there's sort of that there's something that that there's something that the book offers that really sort of challenges what the key way in which they're used to thinking. And so I would say that one of the major ways in which I go about doing exactly that is to try to be very upfront that um, I think there's a very common way of thinking about the sets of issues that are talked about in, uh, in the book and that motivate the book, um, but yet that there's actually something new here and so that people, that the purchase will actually be worthwhile and will change how it is that people interpret um, their political surroundings. Did the wider audience change your writing style at all? Did you become more maybe explanatory? Um, maybe I don't want to say dumb it down necessarily for a non-academic audience, but put it in more simpler terms, maybe more visceral terms. Um, I would say what it made me do is reflect upon uh, when I might have been using jargon and how I could avoid doing that. Mm. Um, but then also especially make sure that I had lots of examples. I mean, that's really sort of the thing that I find over and over again, particularly when I give talks on the book to um, a wide variety of audiences, is that people want examples. They also sort of want um, a sense, and this is really what I talk about in the conclusion of the book, as to sort of, you know, what, um, where do we go next? And sort of, you know, what are the big Im potential implications here and so on and so forth. So now that we have this new way of thinking, what do we do with it? That's a classic thing across the board in storytelling. I think that call to action, if you watch a story or if you read an article, it is one thing to be moved by it or absorbed by it or interested in it, but so often the ones that really last are the ones that people feel a certain call to action from where after I read this article or watch this story or in your case read this book, now I'm going to go do something because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, you know, uh, the forms of economic insecurity that I talk about in the book are very widespread, but they're by no means universal. 
Um, and so my, um, my hope is, my expectation is that the kinds of people who read the book who maybe aren't feeling some of the forms of economic insecurity, and I realize we'll get to some of the details about the argument in, in a little bit, um, but some of those people might be especially moved to action uh, and might be especially moved to reinterpret the kinds of inaction that we currently see um, and use that as a motivator to move forward. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He is Adam Seth Levine, author of the new book, American Insecurity, Why Our Economic Fears Lead to Political Inaction. Adam, you mentioned those arguments and how you get into it. And we, we talked a little bit uh, before the podcast about, you know, chapter one kind of being the on-ramp to the highway of your book and, and being kind of that introductory piece that explains what's coming. And then... Chapter two begins, you know, you're driving 60 on the highway and you've got to keep up with a lot of the facts and figures and data in the book. Is that something that, uh, was that an intentional decision? And do you feel that that kind of, not a spoiler necessarily, but that kind of here's what's coming mentality, that first chapter really sets the stage for the more academic terms and, and work to come? Yeah, I do think that, you know, what I really hope to convey in chapter one is, is not only the idea that there's a puzzle um, in American politics right now, but also that I really have something sort of new to say about it. And so by the time we then get to chapter two, what I'm hoping is that readers are sort of so kind of like their, their curiosity has been piqued so much about this puzzle that they're basically they're ready to go. Um, and so the beginning of chapter two is a lot of sort of laying the groundwork in terms of, you know, what are the facts that we know about these forms of economic insecurity, both using objective data, say, from the government, as well as subjective data from surveys. And so some, of the, some readers may already be familiar with some of that. If not, it's a quick sort of refresher or primer there. Um, and then afterwards, yeah, I'm sort of expecting that, uh, or my hope at least, is that readers are ready to go. What was the most difficult thing to translate from the academic world to the wider audience? I would say at some level, the ideas that I'm talking about are fairly easy, I think, to communicate to a broader audience. Um, the, what I really had to do, though, um, going from sort of the initial inception of the idea to the book was to figure out how to set up the book as indeed a puzzle. Because when I first started the research, the puzzle was very much situated in terms of academic research would expect X, Y, and Z to happen, and maybe we're not seeing that. But for many of the readers, they aren't familiar with, nor should they be expected to be familiar with, what that academic research is about. <laughs> and so what I had to do was sort of say, look, you know, um, here are some ideas that not only do have academic research behind them, but also I think in a lot of cases they're fairly intuitive. And even if they're not intuitive, I can give you a few examples in Chapter 1 and say, look, um, here are things that we've observed in the world. Perhaps you've read about some of them. That just adds to the broader puzzle. What's, uh, and obviously I, I have no doubt you're proud of the whole thing, but what's one example where you felt like you really kind of nailed that translation part of it? Well, I would say any of the examples that I have in Chapter 1 kind of do that to, to some extent. Um, one of the best examples I have I would say, um, comes from when I interviewed people involved with um, Healthcare for America Now. Healthcare for America Now, or as people commonly refer to it, HCAN, um, was the major progressive coalition that was pushing for both Obamacare more generally in 2009 and 2010, but also at one point um, a public option to be incorporated into what ultimately became Obamacare or the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Um, and in a lot of ways, HCAM was an extremely successful organization. 
and was partially responsible for the ultimate passage of Obamacare. Um, but at the same time, when I interviewed people who were involved with HCAN, and I said, you know, who were the kinds of activists that you had sort of on the ground? And what I found in, my, in, in these interviews was that most of the activists were people who um, were not actually personally affected by rising healthcare costs, or at least I'll put that differently, were not very likely to be affected by, by rising healthcare costs. And that was sort of, that was really interesting to me, because here, here's what you had is a moment of potentially great political opportunity. You had Democrats who controlled both the House and the Senate. They had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate for most of that time. They had a Democrat in the White House. Everybody was talking about health care and recognizing that something needs to get done. And so great moment of political opportunity. Um, lots of people paying attention. Surveys saying that Americans are extremely concerned about the issue. Um, but then at the end of the day, the kind of mobilization that occurred to push the issue forward was mostly among people who were least likely to actually be personally affected by rising healthcare costs. And then, of course, as we know, the, the public insurance option never ultimately became a part of the final legislation. Yeah, you make a very good point uh, in the book about how senior citizens often play such a huge role in activism because they simply have more time on their hands. And, and younger people without families yet often can play that same role, but often they're the groups of people who are least affected by a lot of the major issues facing the American economy. Yeah, I mean, I think um, thinking about, for example, the difference between how senior citizens respond to certain kinds of issues or certain kinds of rhetoric versus, say, um, college students is just absolutely fascinating. Right. Because, of course, you know, senior citizens, you know, being mobilized by organizations such as the AARP, but by no means just the AARP, um, are the classic example of people spending time and or money, mostly time actually, um, uh, expressing their preferences on issues that affect, um, very much affect their economic security, um, particularly social security and Medicare. Compare that or contrast that with college students. I mean, in, in August of 2013, President Obama came to upstate New York, not too far from where I live, and trumpeted a college affordability plan. And he, you know, he went all over the New York Thruway, went down to Binghamton, talking about what the different attributes of this plan might be. But what we saw afterwards was basically a whimper. Um, and what we especially did not see was sort of any kind of large movement of college students pushing um, to make sure that that college affordability plan actually moved forward. Well, and uh, the book, is, on the whole, filled with examples like that and filled with, with things that, that I think, again, that just on the surface, you might not think to be true. Things that, that common sense would have you believe one way and then the facts and studies show that it's actually another way. So it's a really fascinating read. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what the book writing process was like. This is your first one, but again, as I mentioned, you've written long form work before. Talk about the, ta the process of tackling this and where the, where the bumps in the road were, where the highest triumphs were. What was it like to write a book? You know, it was um, it was a it was a long and difficult process um, for sure. Um, How long I will was say, that though, process, that what, by the way? Um, well, and, and, I, and I'll give that's my qualifying uh, aspect. <laughs> what I just said, which is that when I first decided to write a book, um, it was in January of 2012, um, which might not seem like that long ago, um, particularly given kind of other obligations that I have as a as a faculty member at Cornell. Um, but 
what made sort of the process go relatively quickly was that, A, I'd already done a few of the studies that sort of formed the core empirical analysis of the book, um, data analysis of the book. Um, but also, I had a pretty good sense of what the overall picture was. Um, you know, the key all along was that I felt like I had something new to say that mattered for sort of how we understand current American politics and really how we understand sort of, you know, political communication and the possibilities of political communication more generally. And so that was sort of the guiding light all along. Beyond that, what I would say is that it helped to write the interior chapters first and then work my way out. Um, and that's pretty much what happened. So the middle chapters were written first in the sense that, so that I had a good sense of kind of what exactly I can show, how exactly I can sort of fill out the contours of what I think is new. And then the first chapter and the last chapter, which kind of, which served to contextualize those findings in a major way, were mostly written afterwards. That's very interesting. I know on the TV side, typically, I, I and I don't necessarily subscribe to this fully, but I know I've felt at times, and I've heard many photographers say that when it comes to their storytelling, if they can figure out what the first thing they're going to say is and the last thing they're going to say, what they can figure out those bookends, then the middle part becomes the easier part. It becomes almost like a long, long chain of connecting the dots. Whereas in this case, and I've heard other authors say this too, that if you try to write the introduction to your book first, then there's a good chance that it's not going to end up relating to the middle and the and the bulk of the book because you've written before you've reached a lot of the conclusions and found a lot of the evidence and just gone through the simple process of writing so that's very interesting that when you're writing a book so often it is a matter of getting the substance part of it in first and the content part of it in first yeah, when I was in graduate school, one of the things that my uh, advisor would tell me all the time is whenever you write, and this would go for a book or go for a paper or whatever, um, the last thing you want to do um, is to promise a 20 and deliver a 10. Ah. And so part of the idea was sort of writing the middle of the chapters was to make sure that I knew exactly what I could promise um, and then work my way out. I mean, of course, as I was working on the middle chapters, I knew that, you know, I had some sense of, you know, um, uh, what the broader political context looks like and how, you know, these kinds of ideas would get situated and so on and so forth. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to make it seem like it was, you know, too linear of a process. Um, but, um, at the same time, you know, I was really mindful of making sure that I'm going to promise a 20 and hopefully deliver. A 20. <laughs> I like that the scale goes to 20. Typically it only goes up to 10. <laughs> so that's comforting to hear. Um, you also mentioned something in, in your earlier answer that I thought was telling you talked about how throughout the whole process, you felt like you had an original idea, and that's really what was spearheading what you did. And I think for so many people who are in whatever field, whether it's journalism, whether it's academia, and want to write a book, the problem is that they never kind of figure out what is an idea that I can devote potentially hundreds of pages to and probably a couple of years of my life to, and that will probably become whatever my reputation is in the industry, it will be intertwined with what I write about in this book. So for you, I would imagine going in, feeling like, you know, I've got something new here that really hasn't been said in very many places. That had to be pretty empowering. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. It was very empowering. And I mean, I'm very fortunate that, you know, um, 
prior, right before um, January of 2012, this was the summer of 2011, uh, 11, excuse me, um, I won the E.E. E. Schatzschneider Award um, in political science, which um, is the highest dissertation award that's given to anybody who studies American politics. And so, you know, um, that sort of the idea that was in my dissertation was sort of part of what then ultimately became the book. Um, I don't want to sort of claim that uh, any part really of the dissertation made it into the final book. The book is very, very different from the dissertation. But the sort of kernel of the idea that the book is about was certainly in the dissertation. And, um, you know, uh, having this idea and, and certainly kind of winning that award in the summer of 2011 was very empowering. And the timeline for you, you said you really started on the book in early 2012. How long did the process take? So starting and, and I should mention, too, that you're doing this while serving as an assistant professor at Cornell. So you're doing this in addition to your day job, although maybe this was part of your day job to a certain extent. It was certainly part of my day job. That's right. Um, so I'm, I'm teaching classes. I'm advising students as well as actually doing other research because the core of the idea this self-undermining rhetoric idea that's in the book, I think has applicability in a broad range of contexts. And so what I'm doing is I'm working on the book because I'm actually also fleshing out how I think it might relate not just to economic insecurity, but things like climate change and national security and um, same-sex marriage and a host of other issues. But um, without going too far down that road, in, in response to you asking you know, how long did it take, well, if I, I would say I started in January of 2012. Um, the book was under review at, with um, the publisher by July of 2013. Wow. Uh, and so that was sort of, you know, that was the core part where I was writing the book, although there were many, many revisions that came afterwards. Um, and so the final version of the book ultimately did not reach the publisher's desk um, until the summer of 2014. Wow. And did you have a publishing deal in place already when you embarked on this journey? No, which is, of course, the great uncertainty for something <laughs> like this. I most certainly did not. Um, and when you start writing a book like this, um, particularly when you're kind of a young author, you don't have much of a name established for yourself. Um, you know, that's really that's that's a huge form of uncertainty. And so what I had to do was um, sort of go on the belief. And if certainly I talked to some some of my advisors about this and some other um, you know people in the field to kind of, you know, get a sense. But I had to really go on the belief that, you know, hopefully there really would be an audience for this book uh, moving forward. Um, but no, I had no contract. I did not receive a contract until um, contract offer, two contract offers until July of two, or October of 2013. Wow. And that's basically by the time the book is already done. Yep, exactly. Wow. Very impressive. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He is Adam Seth Levine, assistant professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University and the author of the new book, American Insecurity, Why Our Economic Fears Lead to Political Inaction. Adam, uh, before we wrap up, I, I usually like to use this last section of the podcast to kind of reach out to younger storytellers. And, and you mentioned uh, talking about being a relatively young author and how daunting of a process that was and how much you kind of relied on your own uh, willpower and, and faith that you had a good product to sell. I would ask you, uh, you know, for people who are graduate students right now or maybe starting their academic careers and want to know more about the process of writing a book and getting it published and all, the whole thing, what were the biggest pieces of advice that you wish you had had when you started this process or back then? Well, I would say um, uh, I, 
I don't want to sort of overstate, you know, the idea that I, you know, the fact that I um, had it all figured out when I started. Um, and so I thought I had it all figured out, but of course I didn't uh, by any means. Um, and so when I really sort of embarked on I me, mean, yes, I had this sort of idea that I thought kind of had, you know, a broad, um, potentially had a broad audience, you know, potentially was sort of an important new contribution for how we think about American politics. Um, but beyond that, you know, I didn't really sort of have a good sense as to exactly how long it would take or exactly the kinds of things that would really be necessary to sort of make sure that um, the book really did sort of fulfill its promise of speaking to a broader audience. Um, and so I would say the main piece of advice um, that I, I wish I'd actually talked to more people right at the beginning um, mm -hmm. to have a better sense of, you know, exactly what the timeline would be and also really exactly a good sense of what the steps would be um, and how to make sure that the pitch of the book is perfect. Um, I learned, I would say that I learned that stuff as I went along, but a lot of that that I learned was sort of, you know, enough down the line where I was then in the position of having to sort of go back and make revisions and things like that, that if I'd known some of that up front, it probably would have been easier. What uh, part of the timeline really surprised you or, or caught you off guard maybe? Well, I would say um, I made a lot of changes um, the, when I submitted the book for review in July of 2013 to two publishing houses. I then got reviews in the fall of 2013. That was October and, and November. And um, there were a lot of uh, the reviewers um, were overall very positive, and I was And that's why I was offered contracts. Um, but, you know, they had a lot of really great points um, and, and things that sort of, you know, some constructive criticism that was very important for me to take or I thought was very important for me to take. And so um, I think at that, that was the point where I ended up sort of spending about, I would say, about the next five months or so making a really large number of revisions to the manuscript um, and altering um, not so much, actually, very, very interestingly, I suppose, um, not so much the middle part, but particularly like the, the two ends um, and how to situate the book that I think made it much stronger. And I'm really happy I made those changes. But that was sort of that was not um, part of the process I had been expecting quite as much. Maybe it kind of goes back to what you were saying before about how you knew what you wanted to say. And, and maybe the tough part was, all right, now, how do I how do I convince a wider audience to understand what I'm saying or to have faith that what I'm saying is worth them knowing? Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, it really comes down to how it is that you situate what the major point is or what you see as the major point um, and say, look, you know, this is why a broader audience should care. And, you know, this is sort of what you're going to get from spending, you know, uh, however much time and money actually reading the book. Yeah, I would, I would ask this question, too, is, uh, you know, as we talk about younger, uh, maybe graduate students or, or early academics coming into their careers, you know, writing a book is not something that you needed to do necessarily, but obviously you had a passion for it or, or wanted to do it for various reasons. Talk about that a little bit and just how, you know, how important that was just to your maturation as an instructor and in the academic world and, and just as far as knowing your topic. Yeah, you know, one of the things I've really learned through this process is how different it is to write a book versus writing articles. I mean, when you write articles, and, and many uh, graduate students, um, or even not graduate students, even undergraduates, you know, who might be listening, would say, you know, oh, I know what it's like to write an article. You know, you have a bit of an introduction for a few pages, then, you know, but, oh, actually, I'll put it differently. You have a beginning, middle, and an end. Um, but the beginning and the end have to be very short. They can only really be, you know, maybe a few pages a piece. Um, mm -hmm. And so, but with a book, that's not the case. With a book, you know, um, I mean, I suppose it, in theory, it could be the case, but typically it's not. 
And so what you need to do is learn how to sort of, you know, craft a, a, a broader argument and situate things and provide the kinds of details that people who are reading a book are looking for um, that you just don't have the space to do when you write a shorter, um, uh, a shorter article. I would think it would actually almost be the middle that gets expanded in ways beyond what you would expect, just because, you know, you go from maybe a couple of pages. When you think of the beginning and the end, you're going from a couple of pages a piece to one chapter, whereas the middle, you go from, you know, maybe 10, 20 pages to suddenly almost a couple hundred. Yeah, well, in some in some ways, you're absolutely right. In other ways, um, when you're working on the middle, at least for sort of a book like this, you sort of, um, the only difference between one article, let's say, and a book is that you just have sort of more things to say. So, oh, okay. you know, basically, I have sort of, you know, I have three chapters, let's say, in my book that have um, have sets of findings in them. And so each of them at some level could basically be an article unto itself. So instead of having one middle, it's almost like I have three middles. Um, <laughs> and so then the difference is, though, that then at the beginning and the end, I have sort of these broader sort of ways of kind of situating why these three articles, A, should even go together, like why they should even be part of the same book. And then again, the part that the point that I've said before, you know, why they're important. And so I do think, you know, at some level, I don't want to go so far as to claim that writing a book requires you to think broader. I've heard some people make that argument. I'm not sure I totally believe that. Um, but it does at least sort of require you to think about, you know, why you need to sort of write as much as you might in a book um, and why it's important. And also just to make sure, I think, because you, you can write a lot more than, say, in, in a normal article, um, you know, make sure that you're sort of, you know, what you're saying is important and making sure that you're not sort of repeating yourself unnecessarily and making sure that you're not sort of writing words just for the sake of writing words. I do think that's actually a really big sort of concern um, that a lot of book authors have, um, certainly in academia, at least. Yeah, making sure that you're not just repeating yourself over and over and to the point where you might lose people or just, like you said, fill up space unnecessarily. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Uh, well, Adam, this has been very, very interesting, and I always like to end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? Well, I guess the only thing I would add is um, that uh, – uh, I encourage people if they want to sort of know more about kind of, you know, what the new way of thinking about kind of American politics is and why it is we don't see action on economic insecurity issues. You know, that's very much kind of laid out in the book. Um, and so I'd encourage people um, to hopefully take a look. The book is American Insecurity, Why Our Economic Fears Lead to Political Inaction. Very, very interesting stuff. And Adam Seth Levine, thank you so much for joining me on the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you very much. And thanks to my vocal cords for holding out as long as they have. The Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story blog, or the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.